Nintendo Audio. If you enjoy the stories on this podcast, you'll also like the stories in my book, Filmmaking Confidential, which isn't just for filmmakers, but also all artists and really any entrepreneur. Now on Amazon.com and Audible.com bestseller. I just want to say thank you to all of you who ordered it. If you haven't yet picked it up, it's available wherever books are sold in most countries around the world. To find out more, check out FilmmakingConfidential.com and SteveBalderson.com. And thank you. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential Podcast. Every week we meet with filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, and other notables. Many episodes include questions or commentary from other filmmakers listening to the conversation. Today's guest is Australian filmmaker Adrian Powers. His film, Brolga, is an Australian-made short film which has just completed a successful international festival run and has been released for streaming online. Worldwide response to the film has been stellar, and the story of the project's journey to the screen is full of interesting lessons for those interested in independent filmmaking. I've always been a visual storyteller. I've always loved drawing and painting and, and you know, creating uh, visually. And I, I was talking about this with someone the other day, which it, it, it was crazy. They, they asked me the same question. They're just like, how'd you get into what you were doing? Just casually. And I was like, I've been obsessed with movies and cinema, like genuinely obsessed with them my entire life and watched them constantly. And, you know, my grandfather used to say like, how can you watch the same movie more than once in a day? I was like, I don't know. I love it. Um, but it didn't really occur to me to move into film until I was like 22 because I was working in a retail job. I was working at a GameStop, managing a GameStop, selling video games. And one of my uh, staff who at the time was like 36 and had gone to film and was a filmmaker, and, you know, was just working this to kind of pay the bills in between gigs. Um, we just had such passionate conversations about movies and cinema. And, you know, he was like, why haven't you gone to study film? And it really was one of those moments where it's like, I feel like such a moron. Like, like if I, ha- why didn't I put that together? It's such an apparent thing. And you're just like, it just, anyway, but I took that to heart. And then the next year I went uh, into film school and things kind of snowballed from there. But in terms of just being a visual artist, really all my life or, you know, and I love writing as well. Like I really in, enjoy creative writing and screenwriting. And I guess the, the real sphere where I have zero talent would be musically. I'm not even going to go anywhere near like a musical field. So visually it's, that's my jam. Cool. Tell me the genesis of this film because it started in when you were in film school. Yeah. Um, the genesis of the movie was like from when I was a little kid, when I was, in school school and just kind of learning and being educated about the the history of the indigenous population of Australia and that culture and how that it, it had been, you know, the, the injustices they had kind of suffered and the schism that's in, in our country. Because again, I'm, I'm not sure how many of your audience is aware, but you know, there's a very, there remains to this day, like a, a great deal of conflict and a troubled relationship between non-Indigenous Australians and, and Indigenous Australians. And a, a lot of progress has been made over the last couple of hundred years, but you know, there's still a long way to go. And really, ever since I was a kid, I was just kind of in the back of my brain, I'd always had this idea of like, I really would be interested in telling a story about uh, coming together, about about communities and Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australian communities, and also metaphorically for really all communities, listening from each other and learning from each other and coming together and and wanting to tell it in a future setting, in in a, you know, sci-fi setting or something like that. 
but I didn't really know what that form would take until I was kind of in film school and I was just doing research because I was really still fascinated by Indigenous Australian culture and art and, and, and their history. And I was just doing my own research and I came across the art of this Australian Aboriginal artist called Michael Connolly. And I, I thought his art was really fantastic. And he was also kind of a poet and he would write these stories that would accompany his artwork and his paintings. And one of them, which is this story of the Brolga Crane, I thought was particularly interesting and, and, and compelling to me. And, you know, it, it goes without saying that, it does, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily, it, it wasn't able to resonate with me in the same way that it would with an Indigenous audience, because that's not the world that I'm from, but it still resonated with me in my own way. And I got in touch with Michael and I said, I really like this work. It was really powerful to me and, and, and thought provoking. And what would your thoughts be? Like, what would, you know, how would you react if I said, like, I wanted to do a kind of collaboratory uh, visual piece of art with you, me from a filmmaking standpoint, but you as an artist, as a painter, incorporating those into a story, which is kind of thematically about reconciliation between these groups, but in a really kind of metaphorical, allegorical way. He was so excited by that idea and he was so into it. And he realized that the potential for that, the, the potential of the message and also the potential to get kind of this art and these messages out to an audience, you know, an even further audience. That kind of just snowballed from there. And we kind of discussed what the idea would be and where, you know, what would, how it would work. And, you know, with me being a non-Indigenous filmmaker, it's like, okay, you have to be very delicate with that. And you have to say, okay, what are you saying with this? What's appropriate? It, that kind of, that kind of thing. But it was a, a really great experience. And, 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 you know, from that point on, it was a really, really collaborative and, and creative joy. But, you know, that was 10 years ago now. I want to I learn more a little bit about the conflict between the non-Indigenous and the Indigenous. And mm -hmm. also, the, I, I want to make sure that I have understood that this story of the Brolga Crane is a uh, story that has been passed down through generations and generations from the Indigenous people. It wasn't something that Michael Connolly made up himself. No, no, it's, it's been passed down by the Murawari clan, which is part of his ancestral background and is... For the Australian Indigenous people, it's a verbal storytelling practice and they pass stories down through rituals and, and ceremonies and it's an incredibly important part of that culture and, and it has a, a nature and a kind of a format all its own. But yeah, this is a story that has been passed down and his paintings were an interpretation of that familial story. And insofar okay. as the conflict, the question you asked, obviously Australia has its own specific political uh, yeah, sorry, historical breakdown, you know, you, you, can't, you can't really generalize, you have to do the research into the specific thing, but to take a, a topographic look at it, it isn't just an instance of, you know, essentially white colonialism, the British coming to this country and coming down and saying, we're claiming this as our territory. And even though there is an indigenous population, I mean, it is, it is extremely unique, but at the same time, the parallels between, you know, the Native American population and, you know, the white colonizers in the US, there is a through line there, but, you know, <laughs> In many ways, there was. Uh, in, in many ways, it was even there were, there, the injustices here were profound because there were there was implementation of actual government policies to to do horrific things to these people, like split them up and 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 um, separate children from you know uh, from their families, and in a really attempt to kind of stamp out the culture and to try to normal and and it and you know it bears its own research, and I encourage any of the listeners to. Just, just to do just a cursory read on the on the history of this you know situation. Just do a Google search on it. Um, it's harrowing, but you know, for me as a young person, you know, growing up in the early '90s um, and and 
being educated on this because I'm I'm grateful because for many 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 years like these kind of topics were swept, swept under the rug and kids weren't really educated on them and that kind of stuff and really only kind of in the 80s and 90s uh, were voices prevailing going we really have to be honest with our with our history and we have to teach children the true history of what happened with this and for me growing up that has been kind of a defining and really important guiding light for me just in terms of kind of social justice. Okay, so I read somewhere in one of your previous interviews that you've done with this film that you had to get permission. Now, explain this to me, because is this something that if the culture, what would have happened had you not worked with Michael and you just made this film on your own without any sort of... That would never happen because that wouldn't be what I'd be interested in doing. That kind of betrays the whole principle of it because the nature of the film and the message of the film is coming together and collaborating and moving forward together. So that would completely defy the purpose of the message of the film. But furthermore, it would also just be, in my opinion, I think morally wrong because it would just be me appropriating an element of Indigenous culture and putting it out without really paying respect or or collaborating or seeking, you know, um, consultation with the people for whom that story belongs. Um, I think that would be kind of a, a really bad taste uh, mm. gesture and um, and just would be incredibly inappropriate. For me, it was the it, it was incredibly important to get Michael's blessing to do this, but more than that, it, that, that wouldn't be enough. It, it's about incorporating his work and showcasing his work. And, you know, I don't want to spoil too much of the story, but the, the, his poem concerning the story of the Brolga Crane is transplanted into the film. So for me, it's, it's, it's critical, it's elementally essential to have Michael involved in the project. If he said, I'm not really interested, it's not really something I want to do, I don't really think it's my jam, that I would have been great, thank you so much, and that would have been it. Right. So this film, was it on the festival circuit for 18 months, or is it, is it still some places being screened? Uh, it is, I think, effectively done. And it's, there are a few, there's a few remaining festivals which kind of got kicked down the road because of COVID. And we'll see who are like, no, no, we're going to go again in a year. And, and all the films that we booked for that are going to return to the cinema screen in the 2021 session. That remains to be seen. But the film had its premiere here in Sydney uh, in September of 2019. And then in November of last year, we wrapped it up with another film festival here in Sydney. And in between then, it went all over the world all over the States, admittedly right in the smack dab kind of middle of its festival run is when we had COVID coming out. So a lot of those film festivals translated to online festivals. And that was kind of a mixed bunch. Some of them were fantastic. Like for instance, we got into the Miami International Sci-Fi Film Festival and they were great. Their online one was fantastic. A bunch of other ones were great. Um, like, uh, yeah, but but for the most part, it was kind of a 50-50 split. We, did come, we came to LA with the film and screened it at Sherman Oaks Film Festival, which was great. So the film had, a, for, for me, like a really satisfying and rewarding festival run. And we got a, a lot of complimentary, nice feedback on the film. And over a dozen awards. Like, can you name a few of the awards you won? Yeah. I mean, like, look, it was great to to get, you know, in, in some instances, you know, like James, James Saunders, our lead actor, he was really rewarded for his performance, which I thought was wonderful. He worked so hard on that film and he deserved it. Um you know, I was lucky to get some Best Director awards. The film won some Best Film awards. Uh, in some film, like, you know, it, 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 because of the film's nature, we did put it into a bunch of genre film festivals. Did well, it did well there. But in some of the other festivals which weren't genre, it won a bunch of awards for the genre stream of those festivals. So we were really, really happy with that. And, um, you know, and some, and some cinematography awards, which I was really happy about as well because Tim, the DP, was fantastic. 
Let me ask you about it because uh, maybe a third of my features have been in black and white. And mm. I want to ask you about the decision to do that and have that approach and, and then play with the color when you do. Was that from the get-go? So, so happy you asked. Um, it was not. And we were actually shooting the film and right in one of the moments we were in that cave, we're, we're all kind of, it's a real cave because we all shot everything on location and we're crowded in this tiny little space. And Tim, the DP, just leans in. He goes, you know, we should shoot this movie in black and white. I was like, what? No. He's like, no, trust me, it'd be great. I was like, that would be, no, it'd be gimmicky. I, I think this, and you know, and this is, again, this is back in film school before XYZ happened. And I said, I don't think so. But then the more I thought about it, they go, wait a minute, not only does that have its own advantages and it could look great if we do it really well, but it gives me more opportunities to actually kind of experiment and say stuff if I want to choose with, you know, and obviously going black and white and then flirting with color, like, you know, that's really potentially dangerous on its own front. Like you can go super gimmicky with that as well. Um, but I thought now, if we think about this and really decide what we want to say and make the transitions to color deliberate, then we can add an extra level to it. Uh, so ultimately I am so happy with how it turned out, but it was almost not to be. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I mean, it's strikingly beautiful. And Thanks. one of the things I was curious about also was some of the black and white looked like it had been photographed in infrared black and white. It's uh, it's really interesting because when we were doing the grade, we we just did some really experimental stuff. Like, it, it, I'm, I'm so happy you noticed that in a way because no one else has really spoken to that, how it's kind of got a strangely non-real quality to the black and white because there was a bunch of areas where we actually did directly invert highlights and do all sorts of things to kind of just make it seem a little alien and strange because that was one of the advantages I thought you know what if we really lean into this then we can use this effectively as production design and really make this add to the otherworldliness of the space and help to world build this environment and so when we we really leaned into that and so it's certainly not just a black and white filter and changing the highlights up in the contrast. It was months of kind of looking at every frame and going, okay, what do we want to tweak and change in this? And as a result, it looks kind of doesn't in, in some weird ways, it doesn't look like it obeys the laws of physics or light with some of the things. And I'm, I'm very happy with that. In my film firecracker, which was released in Australia in 2005 or six, mm. uh, shock records, still may have shock films. Yeah, right. So you, you could probably find it still because I cool. don't know if they, if they still own the license or if the license has reverted back to our sales agents or not, but that's where you out. can find it. But it's primarily rich black and white. And then it's like two worlds that are parallel and the other worlds, this like super saturated color. Right. And cool. it goes back and forth. And um, again, I feel like, you know, sure. If when you study, in film school, they always, you know, say, you know, be aware of the gimmicks and all those things. But the way that you do it in your movie is emotionally visceral, right? Thank like, you. like when it comes in, it's part of the story. It's exactly. not, yeah. it's, it's not a highlighted sort of, you know, it's not like a spotlight on something. It's just, it's, it feels like, of course, that's when it would thaw. That's when it mm. would, you know, un unspool itself into a different dimension. Yeah, um, exactly. Which I really appreciated. And I appreciate you saying that. And that when I kind of thought about experimenting with that, that was when I was like, you know what, that is a good idea. Let's, let's actually, you know, and, and so full credit to Tim, the DP, he was the guy that, that lit that fire. Otherwise the film would be probably look completely different. And I think it would be lesser because we wouldn't have the element you're talking about. 
filmmaker Adrian Powers. Another wonderful guest is cult icon Mink Stoll. John Waters will tell you a story that I threw a saxophone at him. We didn't speak <laughs> after we finished, when we finished filming Pink Flamingos, I moved out. You can hear my full interview with Mink at filmmakingconfidential.com or by subscribing for free to this podcast. When we come back, we'll learn about risking radiation and filming part of Brolga inside the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Stay with us. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential podcast. I'm back with Adrian Powers. When I watched it, I had totally forgotten that you had filmed part of it at Chernobyl. (laughs) <laughs> right. Could you please tell us a little bit about that experience? Absolutely. I mean, look, let me tell you, that's, that's enough for a whole podcast on its own. There's no, there's no doubt about it. Um, it was a really incredible experience. We went there in 2018. The reason for it, um, you know, the reason we went there is because my partner and my producing partner, Jess Stamen, she her family hails from Ukraine. And they were planning to go over there in 2018 to reconnect with some family and some old friends. And I was going to be coming along. And she said, you know, while I'm there, because Jess is a real kind of thrill seeker and adventure head, she's like, I want to go to the Chernobyl exclusion zone. I went, what? No way. You know, I I went apoplectic. I was like, that's insanely dangerous. She goes, no, it's not. Look, I've done the research. And she pointed out all these, all the information and all the facts. Here's the metrics. Here's the details. Here are the Geiger counter readings. It's completely safe. You're going to get more radiation traveling from Australia to Europe just by being in the plane for like 16 hours than going to Chernobyl for three days. Like, okay, I'm sold. So we got in touch with a fantastic group that organizes these day tours there, really highly regarded and lots of great reviews. And so we arrived in, in Ukraine and after a few days, we traveled off. And it's about a two-hour bus, fr- two-hour bus ride from um, Kiev. But then we were on the way over and 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 to backtrack a little bit, when she, when she suggested, let's go to Chernobyl, I was like, well, we're going to go to this you know, famous abandoned place. Um, and at the time, and to, to kind of make it clear, like this is in 2018, we shot the movie in 2011. The reason that there was such a gap is because I had shelved the project because I had so much kind of feature work coming in, working as an editor and you know, all these other things. And I just lost all the time to don't dedicate to this film. And so it was shelved for a while. And then I'd finally brought it out and was working on it again. And in the process of that, I'd realized we really could use some more establishing shots. We could use some more shots that flesh out the, the world and really allow audiences to get a sense of the scale of what we're talking about. So I was like, fantastic. We'll go there and I'll shoot something. Now we shot the main film in the red Epic and I didn't have a red Epic to take with me. Uh, but I just, I just brought along my iPhone at the time, my iPhone X with a gimbal, this, you know, balanced gimbal rig, DJI Osmo two gimbal rig and the filmic pro app. And I was just like, I'm just going to see how this goes. And um, we went there kind of loaded for bear as we were on the bus ride in. And don't forget, this is before the TV series had come out. So we were kind of really uneducated on the real scope of the disaster. I mean, you can do the research on it on your own terms, but I hadn't really done that much. And as we're going over, we watched this documentary that was explaining the full history of what had happened. And it was so incredibly tragic beyond anything I had even really comprehended. And the amount of lives lost in the, you know, continue to be affected by it was so affecting that I was like, okay, well, we have to treat this with a great deal of respect as well. We can't just be going in there. We willy nilly and trying to take it, exploit this. So in the movie, there are shots from Chernobyl in there, but I certainly wouldn't say that they are um, instantly uniquely recognizable or distinct as Chernobyl. You're not going to see the Ferris wheel. You're not going to see Pripyat. It was really, 
some of these more really small tender moments of just a moment that had been frozen in time and had been abandoned. We, we, we supplemented some of these shots with some CGI later on and some digital kind of vistas to, to add to that. But there are some shots in there and um, it was an incredible experience. And when everything hopefully returns to normal, I, I really encourage people to go um, because it's, yeah, it was unique. And they take you all the way to the reactor and you're standing, you know, 100 meters away, no, less, 50 meters away from the reactor. Um, and um, yeah, it was really profound. Um, and now that the show's come out, obviously, there's a lot more education about what happened. It's crazy. Um, I also loved knowing that you did shoot that with your iPhone because quite frankly, I mean, I understand that any filmmaker knows that you can do a lot when you have footage and you're, you're in post and all those things, but you can't tell the difference. You know, I couldn't have yeah. pointed out. I mean, the fact that I know that, okay, I'm looking at a shot of Chernobyl that this was shot on your iPhone. I know that, yeah. but I can't, it didn't jar me. It didn't, I didn't, yeah. it didn't feel out of place. It just, it fits seamlessly in there. What was lucky about that, and you know, and again, that that really speaks to that black and white color grade, right? Because we obviously treated all those shots with the same level of manipulation. Now, obviously, if we put that in there standalone with that red footage, would have stuck out terribly. But because we had that treatment, and obviously we were also treating it with thirty-five millimeter grain and all this extra stuff to kind of give it the texture, uh, I think you completely get away with it. What's pleasing to me is that beyond the shots of the stuff in Chernobyl. There's probably half a dozen pickup shots and insert shots throughout the movie that were all shot eight years later on that same iPhone, and they all inter intercut perfectly with the red footage as well. So that was really incredible and satisfying for me. And we're just, I'm just sitting there, you know, one person crew with the actors in a location that kind of looks like where we were, but don't look too closely. And I've just got my laptop and matching the shot, shooting with my phone on my back. Cuts in great. No one's ever picked it up. You paid for it. Well, like I said, the first block of production, which was this film school shoot where we got certain pieces, but certainly not enough that we needed, that was a film school production. So we had an actual logistic budget for the shoot of $2,000. But at the same time, we had access to all this fantastic equipment. Like I said, red camera, dollies, lights, everything you'd need. So that was probably closer to maybe like a $30,000 short film shoot, right? Um, but after that, we obviously still had to get more material and we needed to pay for post and all kinds of stuff. So a lot of it was being financed by me. And obviously like I cut the movie and so I did not charge myself. When we got to post-production, we really needed some help because one of the really difficult things about this movie was, is that at, right after production, and this is another reason why the film was shelved for so long, but people are going to instantly react to this, but we had a hard drive failure. And at the time the sound guy, well, He's not, he wasn't really a sound guy. The person in charge of managing the drives lost a whole bunch of our sound recordings and we were kind of screwed. And so when I came back into this project and decided to do it, I'm like, okay, so not only is this going to need a lot of work, but it's going to need a lot of sound work and it's going to have a lot of the soundscape for this movie will have to be constructed from completely from scratch. Uh, and so that's a whole other wonderful kind of saga doing that. But I realized I really need some help for this because that's going to cost somewhere in the area of like $15,000, the work we needed to do for that. And so we did a uh, Indiegogo campaign um, and raised seven of that 15, seven grand, which was for me, you know, it was like fantastic, incredibly grateful. Couldn't be more grateful to people that did that. So I financed the remainder and um, got it done. Great. Now let's talk a little bit about um, crowdfunding because 
people say they're going to do it all the time to me, you know, like, Oh, I'm just going to do that. Or I'm just going to do this. And I've had some friends who had successful campaigns and have also said that it was a full-time job. Did you, how was your experience? Yeah, I would call, I would agree with that. Um, because you've just got to raise as much of a social media presence as, as, as you possibly can. And look, there's no denying it. A lot of those contributions, even though there was, you know, n- there was no huge site. There, there was, there was a couple of sites. I think one person donated $600 and I was like, that's incredible. Jenny Fraser, who's one of the associate producers, she donated $600 and that was great. But a lot of it was small amounts and yet they still did come from friends, family, people I knew, you know, people just pitching in little bits. And I'm super grateful for that. We did have con- contributors beyond who, who you know, just came across the project. And it, it's true. I was on social media constantly, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, pushing it as much as I could whilst also managing, trying my best to not be invasive and not to be bothersome and try to keep it interesting and to go with a narrative. And you're like, hey, here's where we're at. We're doing so great. And, and obviously we offered perks and stuff and, and, and uh, you know, access to the soundtrack and all sorts of things like that. And it, it definitely was consuming. I won't say all consuming, but it was, it was a huge portion of my time for sure. Tell me the reason why you decided to do Indiegogo versus Kickstarter strictly because you get to keep what you can raise whatever you raise you get to keep and that's the only one that does that i was i was simply being realistic i said this is the target uh i don't think there's enough of a profile for this project that it's going to set the world on fire so i'm going to use this one and just try to keep whatever we can uh just for you know pragmatic reasons my father used to tell me the most important things we have are our stories It's our job to pass them on, to teach and learn from them. That was a clip from Brolga, directed by Adrian Powers. Are you going to make this into a feature? That, you know... It kind of remains to be seen. We do have, I mean, we have some producers that are interested and we're collaborating on and we actually do have a full treatment for a feature version, uh, you know, with a 20-page outline for a feature version, which I think is so great and and I'm really in love with. But here in Australia, we don't really have, you know, like a, you know, obviously there's an independent scene. We don't really have like a studio system or anything like that. A lot of our... Film is actually government financed, or like they provide government subsidies for film financing. Short answer: Yes, there is there is a plan to do it. I would love to do it, but there's also you know I'm, I'm also deciding like you know maybe it's something that I'd want to co-direct with you know an indigenous filmmaker. There's all sorts of stuff that I'd like to kind of assess about what that looks like and you know where we where we want to take it. But there is a desire, and there there are people that are there to want to do it, and we do have a concept. But I think that I'll be moving on to some other things first before something like that coalesces. We'll see. How do you apply for government funding for film projects? So there is a, there is a wing that there is, there is a, there's an, an organization called Screen Australia. And there's also organizations for each state, Screen New South Wales, Screen Victoria, et cetera, et cetera, which are essentially the government bodies that, that manage and regulate that. And you, that they have um, grants and they have applications you can go through and you if effectively 
prepare a proposal and, and, you know, they will have stipulations and things for you to prepare. And these go from various levels. You know, there'll be some people that will be applying, you know, for a screenwriting consult or something like that. You know, we're going to give you access to X, Y, Z, but, you know, it all, it goes all the way to, you know, there's a certain amount of money allocated each year for, for homegrown Australian films and people basically compete for that money. Well, and wouldn't this be pretty high up there as far as the, the I subject think, matter? I think, and, you know, uh, those producers think that there is a, a great chance for that. How is it set up for people who are non-Australian citizens? Is it something like in Mexico, for instance, uh, I could partner with a Mexican production company to co-produce something, but I can't just go in and apply for this kind of funding. Is that how it is? It's, it, it is the same. And look, you don't quote me on all these because it is an extraordinarily intricate process with lots and lots of bureaucracy and red tape. And the, the folks that work over there are great, but you do have to kind of, it, it is kind of a, you know, baptism by fire. You really have to kind of prove and go through the, the gauntlet to show that you and your film have what it takes to kind of, you know, like, is this just a whimsy thing or are you really committed to making this film, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in terms of uh, foreign collaborators, like, yeah, absolutely. You can do co-productions at, for sure. Um, but they are going to put these things to a, you know, a board of people who assess them and assess how appropriate they are. And they go like, okay, well, we want to give the money to that rather than that. I'm not an expert on how all of this rolls out. There are whole, you know, there, there are producers that specialize just in this, just in this part of Australian film financing. It's, uh, it's a good way to guarantee that we're seeing kind of Australian voices and seeing homegrown Australian film, but it certainly can be competitive. How supportive are they when it's your turn to release your movie? Do they work with you to get theatrical space? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they absolutely do. But, you know, there's also a situation where, okay, you know, who is going to distribute the, mo- the movie? Like, again, it's often a case-by-case basis. Sometimes there are companies coming in, there are already production companies or distributors locked into these productions and they work in tandem with the government to organize and manage the distribution cycle. Or sometimes these films will be financed and then they'll go to festivals and try to pick up distribution in a traditional way. There's no hard and fast rule for it. Uh, and it is not kind of done on a case-by-case basis. And like I said, not an expert, but they absolutely do collaborate. And when the film is in the cinema, and, you know, when the poster's out, like, you know, the Screen Australia logo is, is featured on the poster alongside your production companies. Cool. Did you design the work or did you work with someone? The poster? For my poster? For Broga, yeah. Yeah, I did you it did? myself. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Thanks. Absolutely. Um, did you do the title sequence also? I did. What'd you do it in? I literally did it in Adobe Premiere Pro. I mean, you used to have to do everything in at least After Effects, but I feel like it's it's almost like it's better than after effects now it's or just easier to deal with i think i just think you know if you're into into the editorial mindset it, it, it makes a little bit more sense now than after effects and it means you don't have to be bouncing to after effects and back uh yeah when they introduced that that new text tool and then now that integrates with the essential graphics pane oh it's so much better it's so much better and and this you know when that first came in i was like oh a little bit shocked because it was so different and i'd gotten used to working to a certain level for you know corporate work or you know films of a certain level and i was like oh okay i have to relearn this but now it's 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 great um and you know we did the roller the, the credits roller and premiere as well yeah i was shocked at how good it looked i just i did mine a few weeks ago because my feature was finished literally two days ago or something um congrats and it was thank you it was just it was it, it 
such a game changer because I had spent a week trying to learn how to do it in After Effects. And then I was like, what? And then I just did it. It took me like an hour. It's so much easier. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, totally. I, I tend to agree. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm more proficient in Premiere anyway. So I, I, it's, I, I love it. Were you ever a Final Cut guy? Yeah, look, my, I, I, I work in, in all of the editing software because you know I, I'm happy now that I'm able to be transitioning and moving back like I, I consider I, I like to consider myself a filmmaker I don't call myself a director or an editor I'm just a filmmaker because I write in projects I direct projects I edit projects not necessarily all together sometimes on their own um, but I'm happy that I'm now moving back into kind of the writing and directing sphere because for the last you know kind of 10 years I've been working really as an editor both as, both as a video and feature film editor uh, and working, and, and that's my kind of bed and bread and butter, you know, business. And so in that scenario, you have to be trained and equipped to work on any editing software because there'll be people going like, Hey, we've got this job on Avid. We've got this job on Final Cut, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was, I started back, you know, in 2003 with Windows Movie Maker and then moved on to Sony Vegas and then moved on to Final Cut Pro 7 and then Final Cut Pro X came out and everyone went up in arms and then, Premiere Pro kind of sees the day and now we've got, you know, Resolve being editing software. You've just got to learn them all. But, you know, as is commonly known to editors and just kind of filmmakers in general, you know, that's just software. The editing, you know, it, film editing is a, is a principle in the language and that's just the tool that you do it. And, and they're, they're not that different. Final Cut Pro X is pretty different. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, yeah. Out of all the parts of the process... Which parts of the process are your most favorite? It's a tough question because I really do genuinely love all the parts of the process. I just love filmmaking. I just adore doing it, every part of it. Um, but if you had to ask me what's the favorite part, it, it's, it's, it, will, it would be working with actors and seeing a performance that you've maybe just discussed or, you know, you ha and, and just seeing that come to life really when you're on set and you're seeing that even before you're in the cutting room or whatever, when you're seeing someone give a performance and feeling that, and you've got that energy and you're going, okay, let's move on to the next shot. And you just know like this, you're on a roll and you're getting good stuff. And there's all that, almost that feeling, you know, when you, when you finish a movie and you got everything in the can and you bank it and you go like, Oh, part of me, doesn't even want to go to editorial because then you're going to go into a whole new nightmare of having to figure all that out. And you're going to go through the low points in editorial. I just know I've got a bunch of great stuff in the can. Let's go on vacation, you know? So, so, I, but I probably being on set and working with actors. Cool. What are the other, what are, do you have any other plans for Brolga other than just now it's out, it's available. People can see it. Are you, do you have a sales agent or international uh, distribution trying to license it to different territories? No, for this film, when we made it, when I was working with Michael uh, up front, you know, I said to him, like, I'd love to collaborate on this with you and, uh, and, and, and feature your art. And we spoke about it and, and you know, he said, I'm very happy to, to give this to you for free. Um, and, and I agreed that uh, the film is not being made for profit. It's not about um, sales agents and stuff like that. We just put it on YouTube. It was great to have a festival run for the film. It was really, really great to have people see it in the cinemas around the world. And there was great reactions. But after that, we always knew we're just going to throw it on YouTube, uh, throw it on Vimeo, throw it on Instagram, throw it all over the place. Uh, and it is actually available to watch in the US on Amazon Prime as part of uh, the Discover Indie Film Showcase, which is just a collection, uh, an anthology of short films that comes out. There's, I think, three seasons of it now and Brog is in season three or season two. Um, 
But that was again done with kind of a no profit stipulation uh, from one of the film festivals, from the Sherman Oaks Film Festival. That's one of their kind of side projects. Other than that, just wanted to be on YouTube. It's completely for free. It was a collaborative art piece, and I just consider it a, a public work, for lack of a better word. Um, okay, I'm going to open it up now. Who has a question for Adrian? Nick? Hi. Hi, Nick. Hi, Adrian. Really, really thank you for making the time to share uh, your story with us. I'm just fascinated, scintillated, and I can't wait to see the film. Phenomenal. I just love the energy. Thank you so much. um, I I just have a question. If you can share any tips when you used your DJI Osmo with a iPhone X, did you, what kind of adjustments did you make from a visual perspective on what you were shooting, knowing that you translated but did, um, you, yeah, did it, you have to think about it a little differently when you were using it? Um, you know, in a weird way, yes. I, I'm a big fan of the Osmo Mobile too. I was really happy with the work it put out. And, and if anyone's interested, uh, you can go to my YouTube channel, which is just just type in Adrian Powers into YouTube. You'll find it. Um, you can see my tests with the Osmo, which on on the way to Chernobyl, we stopped in the UK and we actually went to Scotland and we went to Loch Ness. And I was like, and we were going around this, this unbelievable ruin that's right on the, the river in Loch Ness. And so I was like, great, let, let's test it out. And so there's a little one minute, just a little kind of short real montage thing that I put together of all these shots, just, just filming me and my partner in this space. And I was like, let's really experiment and see what's possible with this thing and, and, and have a play with the movement and try to get a cinematic look. Can we achieve a dolly? Can we achieve a kind of crane look? What, you know, a jib look, what can we do with it? And, and I think that it's a really great device. I've since upgraded to the iPhone 12 Pro Max with this amazing camera. And I put that in there and it works really well as, you know, it still holds it and works great. You know, there's obviously a bit of a natural drift to it. You know, like any of these kind of gimbals, you have to kind of accommodate. So if you're going to be panning, you need to stop before the end of the shot because the thing will drift a little bit more before it. So it's just like, I guess, steady cam operators, you kind of have to get a feel for the thing. Um, and, you know, there are some insert shots in the movie that have some movement. And so, and again, as I was saying before, like these are just insert shots where I am literally lying on my back, looking up towards someone's waist as we're shooting, like something or other, um, and and trying to, to match the movement that was in the original shot. I mean, for each of those insert shots, we probably did about 35, 40, no, that's too much, 25 to 30 takes of just these little things because you just try to have to get it perfect and give yourself options. But um, I was really pleased with that device and I, I, I highly recommend it. And um, when we were, and I used it in Chernobyl and, you know, all these people were looking at me like they had no, I mean, there were a few people there with kind of selfie stick things and whatnot, but I was the only guy walking around with this thing. And, you know, it's mechanized. You can, it's not just on the, the movement of its own volition, you know, you can control it with the control panel and move and tilt and whatnot. And people are looking at me like an alien, but I'm sure now there's probably half the people that go there would have one by now. What third part, did you say use the third party um, app? Or uh, software, yeah. Uh, yeah I, with it, with- yeah. So, so there is. So, so when you when you use it, there is actually a, a, a DJI app that comes with it, which allows you to kind of um, customize the controls on it a little more. But the but the device, the the app that I swear by when on my phone is the Filmic Pro app, uh, which you can get on the App Store, um, and it's about seventy nine dollars Australian. So I imagine it's probably about fifty dollars US. And, uh, and that just gives you access to all these unbelievable controls. It effectively unlocks the, your phone's camera and allows you to get into the nitty gritty. You can, you can manually adjust exposure, frame rate, uh, all these great things, all these great tools. But I will say to anyone listening who's thinking about shooting 
anything on your iPhone, the most important thing that I can pass on is the knowledge that despite what the settings in the phone say, uh. an iPhone cannot shoot a, stand, a, a set frame rate. An iPhone is always shooting at a variable frame rate. So what that means is if you shoot a long scene and then you bring it in and try to sync it up with your sound, you're going to get audio drift and it completely goes out of sync. So just a small pro tip, if you're ever shooting anything on your iPhone, get the free open source software Handbrake, Google Handbrake, load your video file into it and make sure you re-export it as a non-variable frame rate. And that way you don't have to waste three days cutting together a video, not knowing why the hell it's gone out of sync and then have to go back and recut the whole thing. <laughs> wow. Did, did you have to do that? About three days ago. <laughs> <laughs> a film I made called Scruples, which is a short film, another short film, but couldn't be more different from Brolga, um, which is kind of an um, undercover crime police kind of thriller film, um, which I made and, and had a, a great deal of lovely success kind of here in film festivals and over the world. But what happened with that film is, is that it got accepted into a thing called the Your Film Festival, which was this collaboration between Ridley Scott, Michael Fassbender and YouTube to kind of pull the, put the nets out all over the world and find some great short films to kind of screen on YouTube. And this was kind of part of YouTube's initiative in 2012 to be seen as a bit more of a place for filmmakers to go to put their work. We're not just for silly cat videos. We want to show that we can actually have quality short films on this platform. And I submitted scruples to that. And sure enough, it got accepted into the 50 semi-finalists, which was fantastic. And that was out of 15,000 entries. And then that was after for the final 50, it was a voting process for the public. It was everyone go out and vote on the fa- on your favorite films and the top 10 will go to the Venice Film Festival and be featured as part of a special presentation with Ridley Scott and Michael Fassbender. And incredibly, Scruples got into the top 10. And this was also, this whole of, this whole event was a partnership with Emirates Airways. And so the film got into the festival and then they, they flew us to Dubai and we stayed in this five-star treatment in Dubai and went to the Burj Khalifa and went to the cinema in Dubai, which was the most surreal thing I've ever experienced. And then they flew us five-star to the Venice Film Festival and put us up in the hotel with all the stars. And we went to the world premiere of The Master, the Joaquin Phoenix, you know, PTA film. And I had a cigarette with Joaquin Phoenix <laughs> and... It was a super surreal experience. Um, the the only tragic part about it was that this was uh, right around the time that that Tony Scott uh, passed away, and so unfortunately, Sir Ridley wasn't able to make it because he was with family, and we completely understood that. Um, but uh, Michael Fassbender was there, and he was chairing the thing, and he was the final judge of the competition. The film did not win, but um, to be to be fair, the film that did win deserved to win. So everyone there was happy because we all we all knew, you know what? That's a that. David Victoria's film, I can't remember the name of it, but if you go onto YouTube, your film festival is still absolutely there. Just type in your film festival. You can watch all the 50 candidate films, including my film. Um, but yeah, the, the guilt, David Victoria's film, The Guilt, Spanish filmmaker and his film, you know, they shot it on 35 mil and it was just unbelievable. So we were all like, that's fine. That's the best movie. Give it to that guy. <laughs> Hilarious. Well, and honestly, that experience alone for the people who were able to experience that is amazing. Dream. But let me tell you something, not to sound too big for my britches or anything, but it was such a useful experience because I got a week there where I was literally treated like a 
triple star celebrity. They were people, we had assistants, people waiting on us. We got taken to the best restaurants and met the, the, you know, unbelievable people. And after that week, I was like, okay, great. That was not something you want to be doing all your life. That was actually such an intense and surreal thing that great. I've, I've seen the top of fame and I know now you never really want to be shooting for that because that's, it's just a surreal, strange alien world. And now I know that I don't have to be going, oh, what would it be like if you could be incredibly A-list? Uh, no, no, just, just, just do what makes you happy. Filmmaker Adrian Powers. You can see Brolga on YouTube, Vimeo, and learn more by visiting adrianpowers.com. Tune in next time for more Filmmaking Confidential. It is totally free to subscribe, and when you subscribe, you'll get upcoming new episodes automatically, and you'll have free access to all our past shows. Please leave a review to let us know how we're doing. The Filmmaking Confidential podcast is a production of Takanga Audio and produced by myself and Ella Spencer. Our theme music is composed by Kevin Robles. For more of the Filmmaking Confidential podcast, head over to filmmakingconfidential.com. To learn more of my filmmaking secrets, be sure to pick up a copy of the book, Filmmaking Confidential, available on Audible, paperback, and ebook, wherever books are sold. I'm Steve Balderson. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Until next time, keep making, keep doing, keep going. <laughs>